0: So whether we have our eyes closed or open, whether we are resting in some kind of stillness or within activity, this knowing is present. And so it is our play to recognize the presence of this knowing in anything we're doing, in anything we're experiencing. Because this knowing is primary. Before the thought, before the feeling, before the sensation, before the car passing by, knowing is present. Knowing is also present as the thought happens, as the sensation happens, as the car is passing by, and knowing is present when the thought ends, when the sensation ends, when the car is gone. So you're welcome to. Stay as you are. Stay with your eyes closed, maybe. You're welcome to open your eyes. You're welcome to dance if you feel like dancing. <laughs> Whatever this knowing wants to do with you, that's what you are here to do. To begin with today, in our, uh, conversation in the verbal part of our gathering let me share with you a an old teaching this is a yogic teaching well actually more accurately it's a it's an advaita vedantic teaching which is the philosophy and school of non-duality i won't go into explaining what that means right now but maybe you'll get the gist of it as we explore this one It was given by a a very important sage in the Indian traditions, a man named Shankaracharya. He said, the world is an illusion. Only Brahma, or God, or the absolute, is real. And in his final sentence, he says, the world is God. The world is Brahman. The world is the absolute. Those are the three lines. The world is an illusion. Only God is real. The world is God. Let's go go through these line by line. The world is an illusion. What does that mean? What it doesn't mean is that you're on one big hallucination. (laughs) It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that you are hallucinating this moment and that it's not really happening. Or that, you know, there are actually no bodies here and we've just tricked ourselves into thinking that this is what's going on. Sometimes that's how the notion of illusion is taught in yoga. It's taught, the word for it is maya. And sometimes it's taught as though you're just on one big, hallucinatory trip but that would be uh, not quite an accurate way of understanding the notion of, an, of illusion what Shankari Acharya is really saying when he says the world is an illusion is he's saying the world that you make up in your mind is an illusion right? that's not to say that uh, you don't experience the world that you make up in your mind as real you certainly do If you think this world is a treacherous, awful place, that's exactly how you're going to experience it. If you think that human beings are basically corrupt and uh, selfish, that's what you'll experience. On the other hand, if you see that human beings have the seed of good in them and are precious, that will also be your experience. So what Shankaracharya Acharya is sort of getting at with this first line, the world is an illusion, is let's be very careful about how we construct our sense of reality. And, you know, that's a difficult task because there are constructs of reality that we're not even aware, aware that we have. There are ways of perceiving and experiencing life that we don't even realize we're, we're even experiencing. So there's a degree of of unconsciousness there's a degree of being asleep to this illusion that we create for ourselves one of the ways that we go about creating this illusion is that we create an illusion of self we take our storyline about who we are we have the history of events that have happened to us we have all of our forms of identity whether it's our Sex, our age, our education, our skills, our looks. And we formulate a very solid, seemingly solid sort of story and narrative about who we are. But then, of course, that fades each night as you go to sleep, as you forget yourself completely and you drift off into sleep and you end up somebody else altogether in a dream or you end up completely open and spacious as in the space of deep sleep. What happens to you in those moments? What happens to you, when you between closing your eyes at 10 p.m. and opening them again at 6? Where did you go? Because the usual narrative and storyline that you're used to isn't happening. Even in the first few moments of waking up, it's not happening. If you pay very close attention, there's a very gradual piecing myself back together again that happens first thing in the morning, usually within the first few seconds of waking up. But just before that, before that has been put together again, there's an openness, there's a space. When we practice meditation or when we do yogic practice, there's a way in which we are gradually becoming aware of this illusory quality of our experience that we're we're starting to see that who I take myself to be is not only a story and a a narrative, but it's a concept. It's an idea I have in my mind based on my name, my body, my sensations, my thoughts, and probably my relationships to the world. But if we begin to question that a little bit, if we begin to examine that, who am I really? What am I really? how real are these narratives and stories that I tell myself, they become highly questionable. You know, if I've been busy telling myself for 20, 30, some 40, some, whatever years, that I'm a loser and I've just believed that. So I walk around as if I'm a loser feeling like a loser in every situation. And then I suddenly question that like sincerely question like that as in maybe that's not real at all maybe that's just what i've been telling myself we can pretty quickly come to see that the story of being a loser is illusory <laughs> it's that's a good spin on that word illusory <laughs> you're a loser in the illusion <laughs> and there's a waking up that happens then it's like oh i'm not confined to that story i'm not confined to that narrative I've been telling myself at all. In fact, I might be entirely free of it. And we might come to see that that story of being a loser is not real. It's not true. you know. And then on the other hand, you might be a very successful person with lots of money and lots of accolades and lots of degrees and lots of experiences and whatever. You speak many languages. And you might think that that somehow makes you bigger a bigger, better person, but you realize that's just as flimsy as being a loser, right? So there's a positive side to this and there's a negative side to this. There's a side that we reinforce our idea of ourselves in a positive way and there's a way in which we do it in a negative way. But what is the reality? What is the truth? Who am I really? What, what's happening here that's not an illusion? What's happening here that's not made up? by my mind. Well, we have a hint of that in our meditation, that there's a knowing present, that there's a knowing and an awareness present that doesn't come and go like thoughts come and go, or like feelings come and go, or like sensations come and go, or like the cars come and go, that it's here before, during, and after any event that we can observe. That knowing is like a doorway in, a doorway into ourselves. I quoted uh, Muhammad in class. He said, one who knows himself, herself, knows the Lord. And that points to the second phrase that Shankaracharya uses when he says, only God is real. When we temporarily see through the film, the screen of the thoughts, and feelings, and sensations that we're busy telling ourselves about ourselves, or the world, either way, there's an experience of that knowing as being always present. Now that on the surface is not all that exciting until we start to get involved in what exactly is that knowing. Because if it's not the story I have about myself, if it's not my age or my sex or my education or any of these things, what exactly is that knowing? What's it made of? What is the substance? What is the source of that knowing? Eventually, our investigation of that, our our inquiry into that brings us to the knowledge that that knowing is none other than God, none other than the inner truth of our being. It's what's implied in the biblical statement, be still and know, or be still and know I am, or be still and know I am that I am. So what's being implied there is there's a knowing, I am, you are, that you are the knowing and so it's a more intimate experience of ourselves it's a closer experience of ourselves than what we think or feel or sense because all these are phenomena they're events they're coming and they're going you know it's like you see one thought there there it goes you see one feeling there it goes you see a sensation there it goes but that knowing remains constant does it not eventually our our examination of what this knowing is is brings us to the experience and understanding that that knowing is not only ever present, always here, but also universal. That there's a knowing about you and a knowing about me that is the same. Obviously our bodies are different. Obviously our thinking styles are different. Obviously our sensations are different at any given moment. But there's a commonality in that we're both existing within a state of knowing. We know our own feelings. We know our own sensations. So we share that knowing. And the one law that governs knowing is that it's always in the present moment. Whatever I can know, I can only know in the present moment. Even if I know the future where i know the future is in the present moment if i know the past say as in a memory i'm knowing the past in the present so knowing is when we look at it it's always bound to the now it's 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 you can't remove knowing from now they go hand in hand at some point we realize that that's The living presence of the Lord, that that's the living presence of God. Our own knowing is that. And the final statement by Shankaracharya, he says, the world is God. So we've been able to, in his first statement, we're able to separate the illusion from the real. We're able to understand that we have certain stories and narratives that we've constructed that may not be so real. We, t- we touch in, in his second statement with the sense of knowing that is real, that is present, and what follows is an understanding that that knowing, that God nature, Buddha nature, Christ nature, whatever you choose to call it, is here disguised within every form, within every situation. So we actually see that the world that we were busy constructing, when it dissolves, when it crumbles, what's left is the face of God, the face of truth, the face of being everywhere. So now, not only am I not who I thought I was, but the person I thought you were isn't who you are either. Are you with me on this? Are you following? Okay, good. Which means that If I think you are so-and-so with so-and-so a name and such-and-such an age and on and on with all the details I could assign to you, I miss who you really are. I miss what you really are. So I miss myself and I miss you. But if we're attentive, if we're really here and we're immersed within our knowing, then what we look at when we see each other is we see the face of God. We see the face of being, present, reflecting back on us. Right? But there's an intelligence in Shankara Acharya's formula because you know, it would be nice if we could just skip to the third step and say, well, the world is God. It's all, it's all sacred. It's all beautiful. It's all incredible. But we can only do that once we've had some kind of breakdown of the framework for how we see the world for how we see ourselves, you know breakdown implies that it might not be so easy (laughs) sometimes it's not (laughs) but ultimately that if we are able to experience the breakdown of our illusory ideas about ourself or the world that's permitting a space for the truth to be known that we might actually see ourselves and one another in the world clearly, truly, as they really are. Like when William Blake says, uh, when the doors of perception are cleansed, you will see things as they really are, infinite. You will see the infinite face of God disguised in everything you look at, whether it be a rock, a person, a car, whatever it may be. right." that of course takes a breakdown because when you look at the car, you think you're looking at a car. When you look at a person, you think you're looking at their name and their history and their sex and their age and all those things because you're looking at a body. But what are you really looking at? What's really there? If you can recognize what's really here as you, your knowing, your awareness, your presence, then it becomes possible to see it there in the person, the car, the rock, what have you. So there's a really exquisite formula within this within this teaching of Shankarya Acharya. It's like, let's break down our false ideas. Let's find out what's really going on here. And then, wow, what's really going on here is a lot more amazing than what I thought. The main symptom of living the illusory life is that life seems repetitive, dull, and it seems as though the best thing you can do with yourself is seek out endless forms of entertainment. That's illusory life. Not to mention the enormous undercurrent of suffering that goes on within that. That's what Buddha said. Buddha said, life is suffering. Life is miserable. But he wasn't talking about life in as it really is. He's talking about the life that you've constructed for yourself. The life of the mind. The life of the narrative, the life of the story, it's dead, it's old, it's no good, it's not alive. So if we're willing to have a breakdown, hopefully not a nervous breakdown, hopefully a a glorious breakdown, there's a possibility that we might become disillusioned, disillusioned, that the construct or illusion that we might be operating under would crumble And that may give space for something true to be seen and known. We might be surprised by what we find. Might be surprised about who's actually here behind our eyes and ears and skin. And then what's really there behind the eyes, ears, and skin of who we're encountering. It's not important that we get hung up on terms like God. Please don't. If you've never been to satsang before, you know that one day I'll use the word God, and and then you might not hear that word again for six months, because we use words like being, and we use words like presence, and we use words like the absolute, and we use words like yourself all the time. So if you hear a word like God, please understand that it, it may not carry the same connotation as what you've been taught. God is. And that would especially be true for Shankaracharya's teaching, where when he says God, the word he uses is Brahman. And Brahman means more like the all, everything. It means something more like everything, the all that is, right? Rather than a bearded person living in the sky somewhere, you know. I'm sure most of you understand that, but I just wanted to be clear about that. It's quite difficult though for most of us because this illusion, this maya, we take it to be real. You know? Like it feels really real that I'm the person I think I am with my name, age, sex, what have you. It feels really real. You know? But there are moments, plenty of moments, moments all throughout the day where that story or that narrative is not being sustained, it's not being driven. You know? simple moment, like I said in class, a bird craps on your head. Or you trip on the sidewalk. Or you catch the the hint of something cooking. And there's a moment where whatever story or narrative you're operating by, it just stops. There's a brief little pause, a brief little comma, where it stops. And in that moment, if you were attentive to it, you would see that the illusory world that you live as yourself in that moment is absent, it's gone, it's gone. A moment later, you hardly noticed it and you're putting yourself back together again. You're worried about what you have to do at work tomorrow and what that person said to you at the bar the other night and whatever. You're going right back into the cycles again, right? The stories and the narratives and believing them to be real and operating as if they're real and reacting as if they're real and getting all angsty about them being real and, you know, and wanting to go on vacation because you feel so much angst about it, and on and on and on it goes. Right? But there's a simple invitation, and that invitation is always, always, always now. It's now. We don't have to go on some glorious meditation retreat. We don't have to vacation to the beach in Mexico. That right now is that moment. Right now is that opportunity to just stop. That's what my teacher said. She was famous for saying that. Just stop. Right in the middle of, of your cycle, right in the middle of the movement, you know, right in the middle of taking the next step in your story, stop. Just right there. And check out in that moment of stopping what happens, what's present. It's glorious because it's an opening. It's a moment of not repeating the same thing again. So there's a moment of choice, you know? It's like you're on the highway, you think you're bound to the highway, and all of a sudden, you see an exit ramp. It's like, woo, let's take that off the highway, off the storyline, off the narrative, which suddenly then opens up a vast territory, you know? Because we usually operate within a very confined perspective. This is who I am, this is what I like, this is what I do, this is who you are, right? But suddenly, in that stopping, there's a wide-open possibility that takes place. We could call that wide-open possibility God. And the thing to understand about the world, and man, when we see this, it really rocks us. The world isn't out there. It's not out there. There is no world out there reporting itself to you. The world is your own mind. And this can be shown, this can be proven. All we need to do is if, if you and I went into a room, just the two of us, one by one, and I wrote down you know, a paragraph or two, and you were detailing to me what the world is, I would come back with however many of us there are here, that many different answers as to what the world is, right? Because the world is not a static thing that reports itself to you. Because if it was, we would go behind closed doors, and I would take down your story of the world, and it would be exactly the same for every single one. But that's not so. How we experience the world is highly variable, based on a lot of different things, right? Perceptions of all kinds. But there's a question that we're brought to in the yogic path, in, in the path of meditation, which is, what is the real world? What is the world that does not? What is the world that is not altered by my story of it, or my ideas, or my experience of it? And that's where in this journey we seek truth. What is the true world? What is my real self? What's really going on here? So that's saying a lot of things. There's a lot of big ideas, perhaps. For some of you, they're old ideas, but hopefully new again. Um, So let me pause there. And are there any um, questions or experiences or anything that you might have to share? Intellectual knowing? Well, certainly I think that 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 points to the first the first of Shankaracharya's statements about um, seeing that the world is illusory because the knowing that we have most of us currently is intellectual and it's and it's um, solidified and it's rigid maybe and those ways of knowing don't constitute a truly open consciousness or open mind. And so there is a need to let go of knowing there's a need to let go of what I have known in order for, for some new possibility to emerge. So it's, it's quite relevant. The knowing I'm speaking of in the meditation is, is yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good, good, good. Yeah. It's important not to know. It's important not to know you know socrates in ancient greek was called the wisest man in greek because he did he knew that he didn't know being being in in not knowing is knowledge it is knowledge because there's a way where as soon as we solidify solidify our ideas and concepts about who we are or how things are That's the moment of ignorance. Because in that moment, we've shut out every other possibility of how things could be, or of who we are. You know, I'm always, when I hear someone say, I know who I am, I'm like, ooh, I feel bad for you. (laughs) You know? Because if I'm telling the truth, I have no idea who I am at all whatsoever. I can tell you lots about my body. I can tell you lots about my nervous system. I can tell you lots about my emotional tendencies. I can tell you about my relationships. I can tell you what kind of car I drive. I can tell you how I voted in the last election. I can tell you what my diet is like, but I cannot tell you anything about who I am. I have no idea. I have no idea. Zero clue, none, not even a trace of of anything. (laughs) That's an incredible place to exist. I tell you, it's just incredible. Our mind is so busy, because it feels like to live in such a way would be terrifying. Like, how am I going to get anything done? How am I going to talk to anybody? How am I going to relate to the world? How am I going to remember to eat? How am I going to, you know? I need to know who I am to do those things, but do you really? If that's so, if you need to know who you are in order to live this life, then why do you seek out experiences where you can forget yourself? like? watching a movie, jumping out of a plane, having sex, reading a book, getting drunk, whatever. Then why would you seek out those experiences? Because there's something intuitively within us that wants to be free of the known, wants to leap outside of the the usual framework. We feel ecstatic, we feel joyful, we feel alive when we do that. And yet there's this mechanism in us that tells us it's insecure to not know who I am, I have to know who I am. Right? But try as we might, all you ever finally get at is that you are some kind of mystery. You're some kind of divine mystery. And every label you attach to that, every name, form you attach to that, just feels like a tight shirt, doesn't fit, not big enough to encompass what we are. Back when I was in college, I was like taking out. <clears throat>
1: Mm. I just find it coming to me right now when you're talking about not knowing yourself. And so there seems to be a bit of tension in those concepts in my mind right
0: now. Yeah. Well, I think that's where Muhammad's teaching fits very well. He who knows himself knows his Lord. Or if we could say that knowing oneself at the ultimate, at the height, is knowing oneself as a mystery. There's levels, of course, I mean, you know, for a person, let's say for a person who's unaware of their emotional world, knowing yourself can mean becoming aware of your emotions. For a person who's unaware of the stories or narratives they have in their own mind, knowing yourself might imply becoming aware of those. So there are certainly levels to the knowing and I'm kind of cheating by going straight more to the mystery (coughs) part of things. Uh, because it's the culmination. It's the end, if you will. But there are certainly um, stages or levels to it of, of knowing myself. I mean, the most basic sense, we'll talk about this when we work with the chakras, is the most basic sense of one knowing oneself is knowing oneself as a body. That's the most basic. You can't get more basic and gross than the idea that you are your body. That's the most sort of elemental experience that we have. But it doesn't stop there, because if you just thought of yourself as a body and I said, introduce yourself, then all you'd have to do is show your body. That's all you are. You're obviously something more complicated than that, right? You are your beliefs, your perceptions, your experiences, um, all of those things. So when I say, who are you? You go not only from your body, but also into your history, right? And then we go a step further, it's like, who are you now? Hmm. It starts to get a little bit more interesting then, right? And on and on. I won't go into great detail about the levels. But on and on it goes is that our experience of knowing ourselves is increasingly more subtle to the point where we know ourselves as a total mystery, certainly in a resume writing class. You know, can you imagine? (laughs) You get an application. (laughs) Name, the mystery. (laughs) Purpose, have no idea. (laughs) History and education, (laughs) the unknown. (laughs)
1: Mm. And no one thought of anything else that was possible. Right. And within my own class, like, everyone went into financial services, investment banking, consulting, whatever. And I moved to California to work for Red Bull. Like, it was a completely different path within the group that I was in that I took. And I feel like I've continued to go down this path of, like, removing blinders, I guess you could say. And I have these same friends. Mm. Like, I hate my life. I'm a VP, you know, for credit, Suisse or whatever. But, like, I hate my life. Mm -hmm. I'm miserable. Mm -hmm. So it's just this really, I don't know, where I'm going with that thought other than, like, this idea of annoying yourself. And what I said to that friend when she, like, called me was, like, think of who you were as a child and what made you, like, light up with joy, right? Like, that's Mm -hmm. still inside of you somewhere. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: That brings, us to, that brings in another very important piece to this, which is that knowing yourself implies discovering what have you, the joy, the peace, the love, the creativity that exists in you. And that's, you know, otherwise, why would we be even talking about that if that wasn't really the, the purpose of it? So that, that brings us to the very important reason for knowing oneself, mm-hmm. absolutely. It
1: really, in my mind, almost is like we're talking about liberation mm-hmm. in a way, right? Like yep. Yes. And I feel like I'm constantly relearning
0: it. Yeah, and you know, one of the reasons for that is that in the replacement of knowing thyself, in the replacement of our true knowing, the ego, one of its purposes is to mimic that. So what we often do is we try to shine through the ego. And, you know, we try to be. I don't know, big, important, successful, in worldly terms, right? And so we're all, that's that's the breakdown of the illusion, is that whatever it is that you've been aiming at, whatever it is that you've been trying to construct of your separate self, your separate existence, is too, too limited, it's too small. So even those lesser attempts to shine through the filter of the ego, they have to break down. They have to break down, and that's not an easy thing to to discover. It's not exactly clear in us from the beginning what the difference between our ego and our inner being is, but we we learn that. We we gradually learn to see what the difference is. You know, like for example, the ego trying to shine may come through as some kind of trying to prove something to oneself or the world, or trying to, you know, be Noticed or recognized in some way. Whereas the shining of your pure knowing has no such desire, no such aim to it at all. You know what I mean? So we gradually through the exposure to our knowing we we understand subtle differences like that in us. Important ones. Yeah. You're not likely to get the job. <laughs> But you will get a lot of, you'll provide a lot of laughs. They'll be showing all of their, all of their friends, like, look what this person wrote on their resume. <laughs> you know, someone asked Al-Halaj Mansur, the Sufi, this was maybe 1200 or something like that, who he was, and he said, I am the truth. It was basically saying, I am God. And uh, they said, oh yeah? <laughs> and they took his head off. Yeah. Hopefully we don't reach that point again. once you're absolutely serious. <laughs> yep. I mean it, really. When you're absolutely serious, you can afford to be lighthearted then. Because if lighthearted, if, if we don't have absolute seriousness, our lightheartedness will quickly diminish into frivolity. It'll, it'll quickly diminish into the plays and strategies of our ego. And that's, It's not bad it's not wrong it's just not awake you know and it's a funny paradox but it's true is that with that sense of absolute commitment or seriousness about what we are who we are that absolute commitment it's like it sweeps the space clean and then there's all kinds of room for being humorous it's not like we have to be humorous or even that we feel this compulsion toward humor. It's just that when humor is needed, it can, it can appear, you know, it's like, it's, it's a free play. And I think that what sometimes we do is, I'm not, you're not saying this, I don't think, yeah, but Yeah, yes. Well, that's the interesting paradox here is that being serious means being relaxed. You see, the seriousness of the ego is like, work hard, strive, make it happen. I'm going to get myself enlightened. You can see that in people. You can see that in yogis. Meditators are like, you know, there's like this angst. They probably can't go to the bathroom. But the seriousness is actually something more like what you're talking about, which is where your seriousness is so complete that there's nothing to get heavy-handed about. There's nothing to get um, intense or strive for. There's just an openness taking place. So I think in that way, what you're talking about is. It's simultaneously serious and humorous at the same time. I was thinking about that this week. and in times of great crisis. <clears throat>
1: my upbringing and family tends to be severe and dire.
0: And I was like, there's gotta be another way <laughs> to see this in myself and people. And I have an older friend at work who, uh, who's the master of your knowing link. Not mm-hmm. in
1: Yeah. And uh,
0: I aspire to that, the, the yep. knowing not or the knowing that, like, like, it like what's going on? Mm-hmm. You know, that's, it brings us, I- interestingly enough, it brings us to the notion of a comedian. Because one of the things that's absolutely remarkable about comedians is that they tell the truth. Mm-hmm. You think t- comedians are telling jokes. You, you would think they're telling fictions. But they're actually often telling truths. And they're the truths that everyone else is afraid to tell. And that's why we can sit there and, ha, 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 that's so true. <laughs> you know? Uh, there's something very relevant about that. Not that we get enlightened just by being a comedian. That certainly doesn't work. But, but there is something of a cosmic joke that's taking place. And, but here's the thing about the comedian. They're telling the truth. That's the act of seriousness. But the, the, the telling of the truth, then, is then facilitating this atmosphere of humor, the cosmic joke, the cosmic play. It's lovely. Anything else before we go our separate ways?
1: I have a question. I don't, I don't know if you have space for it in this time, but I'm like learning a lot right now. you and like your life's purpose right and so i just it's interesting to me that that word hasn't come up in this conversation because it feels relevant hmm. so i guess from your perspective i'd be interested to understand how you think of creativity when you you know speak those three sentences you started this conversation with
0: i hold creativity to be the spontaneous intelligence and beauty of our being manifest in any given moment so I take creativity to be not limited to a specific arena of our life, such as a creative endeavor or a project or anything. I take it to be the very fundamental basis of our being, that we are creative. And it did come up in a, in a somewhat um, unfamiliar way when I was talking about our ability. So when you invest a negative thought or a power, or sorry, when you invest a negative thought or say a positive thought with reality, you are infusing that with creative life force. That's why whatever you choose to believe becomes your experience of reality. And this is where Buddha says you are creating your reality all the time with your mind, right? That's to me, the highest principle of creativity is that we are in in that way. I don't see that we have any choice. We are always, always, always within an act of creativity we just may not know it, (laughs) right? So I I hold creativity to be none other than the deepest foundation of our being. And the reason I point to knowing is because when there's that sense of knowing present in us, what we choose to breathe the life of being into, what we choose to create as our reality is much more disciplined, clear, true, right? So i that's how I see creativity. I feel like that connects really well with what you
1: brought up about play. Because if you're playing then you can you can have the creativity be something that feels positive and not negative. Right. It's it all not understood by the way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, we can come back to that in our group if we want. Let's end there for today. Thanks everyone. Namaste. <laughs>